October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Did you know an average of 20 people per minute are abused by an intimate partner in the United States? Did you know that one in four women and one in nine men experience severe intimate partner violence? One in seven women and one in 25 men have been injured by an intimate partner. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence, like beating, burning, strangling by an intimate partner in their lifetime. These statistics are absolutely heartbreaking. And today I'm going to tell you a domestic violence true crime story that is a very near and dear to my heart. Because if you have experienced domestic violence or severe domestic violence, you are not alone. The statistics that I just read are proof that you are not alone. Domestic violence survivors are everywhere. Hi, true crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. You will not find this story in a Google search because this story was never in the media. This is the first time this story has ever been told publicly. If you know me personally and were present for this story, I respectfully ask you to tune out. There is no need to relive it. Please be advised this story does contain explicit content. Anne Lancaster was 25 years old. She lived in Michigan. She had been raised there. She had two children she was raising on her own. Their father was more out of their life than in their life. As Anne was catching up one day with a distant acquaintance, they suggested that she exchange numbers with a single man they knew named Steve. Over the phone, Anne and Steve seemed to head it off and they decided to meet at a local Applebee's. They lived about an hour apart and he was willing to drive all the way to Anne. Anne's first impression of Steve wasn't great. There was just something awkward there. But as the night progressed and everyone relaxed, Anne realized she really liked Steve and wanted to see him again. A week later, the new couple met at a bar. Neither of them really frequented bars, but it was just somewhere to meet. They spent the night sipping a few drinks and chatting, and eventually Steve leaned over and kissed Anne. Anne recalls that this was the best first kiss she had ever had. As he pulled away, she actually said wow. She immediately felt that this was the person she was meant to be with. Ah, to be so young and so naive. Anne had always wanted a family, a complete family. She wanted to be a mom. She wanted to clean the house. She wanted to cook the family dinner. And it was only four months later that Anne asked this person to marry her. Anne felt like she knew all of his secrets. She felt like he knew all of hers. And so Steve moved in. 
Anne's mother warned her that it was too soon, that she didn't really know Steve, but Anne didn't listen. The couple had a small wedding with just their parents standing up next to them at the courthouse of the local city that they lived in. It was small, but it was beautiful. Anne spent the next three years of her life very happy. Her and Steve never argued. He didn't seem controlling or possessive. Until one day, Anne was on the way to her sister's house, and she noticed that Steve's truck was a couple cars behind her, and she thought that was really strange. But she didn't say anything to him about it. I mean, she was supposed to be going to her sister's house. She thought maybe he was having some doubts about who she was. But what she didn't know was that she didn't really know Steve at all. The man that she trusted, that she trusted with her children, was not the man she thought he was. Anne had recently had a phone conversation with a friend who lived in Washington. And she remembers telling the friend, I feel so lucky. Me and Steve never fight. We never have the same problems that other couples seem to have. Anne had taken some time off work and she was working on building a dollhouse for her daughter at her mother's house every day that week. Her mother had a bigger garage and she could hide the dollhouse from her daughter. And her daughter's birthday party was just the next weekend. But it was the Friday night before that birthday party was scheduled that Steve came to Anne and told her that he thought she was cheating. And Anne was not cheating. Anne had never cheated, which is something her family knows because they know where she was. They know that she was building that dollhouse. But Steve had hit audio recorders in the house and he brought her one and said, well, listen to this. And Anne listened because what could he possibly hear that would insinuate that she was cheating? I mean, after all, she wasn't. And Anne did hear noises that sounded like people talking to each other and getting really hot and heavy. And it sounded just like something on a daytime TV soap opera. Anne often left the TV on during the day for the dog. Anne looked at Steve in puzzlement and said, this is clearly people getting hot and heavy on a soap opera. This doesn't even sound like me. Why would you think this was me? And Steve listened to that audio recorder again. And he said, you know what? You're right. This is not you. This is not you cheating on me. But then Anne looked at Steve and she said, but now we have a problem. You hid audio recorders in my house. You're spying on me. I don't, I don't know what to do but I need to think. Anne left the house. Her children were in this house and she left the house, went to a friend's house for about an hour, talked to her friend. And as she was leaving her childhood friend's house, she said, I never thought he would be capable of hurting me until today. Anne walked in the door saw her husband sitting on the couch alone in the dark, went into her bedroom and simply went to bed. Anne was oblivious to anything going on in the house while she was asleep. And she didn't know anything was strange until she woke up. 
When she woke up, her first thoughts were that she was possibly buried alive or in a box. Her feet were in the air kicking and her arms were swinging and she didn't know why. She pulled both of her feet back and gave one last shove and she was able to shove something very large off of her. Anne stood up in the area between the bed and the wall, her eyes adjusting to the darkness. She realized her husband was there. Anne gave a sigh of relief and said, Oh my God, thank God it's you. I was so scared. What's going on? Steve lifted the bread knife he had retrieved from the kitchen. It was one of those long, skinny knives with two prongs on the end. And in a voice that she had never heard him use before, said, I'm going to fucking kill myself. And screamed, what? What is going on? No, you can't kill yourself. Why? What's going on? Why would you do that? Why are you saying this? And that's when Steve said, I'm going to prison anyway, and pointed at Anne. Anne looked down. She put her hand on her side, under her left breast, and realized for the very first time that the commotion that was happening while she was waking was actually her being stabbed. The wound didn't hurt, but it was bleeding, and she knew she needed to get help to the house. Anne crawled over the bed past her husband intently, walked into the hallway, and noticed the light in the stairway had turned on. She opened the door, and her daughter was coming down. She was only six years old. Anne looked at her daughter And she said, run and hide, hide in the closet. She shut the door and she turned off the light so no more attention would be brought to the stairway. Monitoring what was going on behind her, because he was walking behind her, she walked directly to the phone in the kitchen, picked up the receiver, and called 911. Although Anne did have a cell phone, this was about 10 years ago when a lot of people still had landlines. She had kept the landline, even though no one ever used it. She picked up the phone, and she dialed 911. While she did this, her husband passed her, and he went down into the basement. Anne told the operator she needed help, that she had been stabbed, and that her husband had done it. She gave them her address, and although she doesn't remember these conversations exactly, she heard her husband coming back up the stairs. She told them she had to hang up. They were trying to explain to Anne not to hang up the phone. They wanted her to set the receiver down. They wanted to hear what was going on in the house. But Anne didn't realize that at the time. She told them she had to hang up the phone, that they didn't understand she had to hang up the phone. And she hung up the phone. Anne went to the bathroom, which was the doorway next to the stairway, and closed the door. Anne immediately realized her failure. She was leaving the stairway open. What if he went up the stairs? She opened the bathroom door just enough to be able to peek. She could see the door to the stairway, and she wanted to watch that door. While this was happening, Anne had noticed that she had been holding her wound, and she looked at her hand 
and it was drenched in blood. The floor below her was drenched in blood. She'd never seen puddles of blood before in person. But her husband retreated back down the stairs to the basement, and she left the bathroom and went and picked up the phone and called 911 again. She can't recall the conversation that she had, and it didn't last very long because he started coming back up the stairs. She hung up the phone again against the 911 operator's wishes. She just didn't realize what he was telling her to do. Anne ran into the stairway and held the door at the bottom shut from the inside. Anne's goal was to be between him and her children and to have a door in between her and him. But she was also trying to hide. But she realized quickly he knew exactly where she was. She was holding the door handle from the inside and her hands were shaking so violently that there was no way he couldn't hear the clanging of the handle. Both of Anne's hands were a bloody mess and she was well aware that if he turned the door handle, there was no way she could stop him. Her hands were slippery and she regretted ever holding her wound. After all, the blood was pooling under her everywhere she went anyway. She couldn't hold in the blood. The stab wound didn't hurt. It just felt kind of empty, like there wasn't any pressure there, like her body was releasing blood. But as she sat in the stairwell, her husband did not try to open the door. Instead, he whispered, you don't have to do that anymore. Come look. Anne did not go look. She stayed exactly where she was and she held the door as firmly as she could, and she waited. Although it seemed like an eternity, it really wasn't that long, and he retreated back down the stairs. Anne left the stairway and went to the telephone one more time to call the police. And when she did, the 911 operator knew exactly who was calling, and he said, the police are outside, can you let them in? Anne, shocked at the fact that they did not come through the door on their own, although it was locked, ran to the front door as fast as she could, pushing herself off of the wall to get there faster. She took one quick glimpse at the wall and saw her bloody handprints and noticed at this time just how bloody her hands had been. She had never seen bloody handprints on a wall in person before, and that image would be embedded in her brain for the rest of her life. Anne was relieved when she opened the door, and there stood three police officers, guns drawn. They walked into the house, and Anne said, My children are upstairs. Can you get them? And they said, But where is he? Are the children okay? And she said, Yeah, the children are okay. He's in the basement. Anne had realized she was starting to slip in and out. She had lost so much blood. The wooziness had been setting in for a couple minutes now. And Anne said to the officers, I'm going to go get into the ambulance now. And the officers responded, the ambulance is not here yet. Anne was devastated. She knew she needed the ambulance. She knew she needed to get into the hospital. And although Anne does not think that she fell in any way or actually passed out, this is where the gaps in her memory start. 
she knows she was starting to slip in and out of consciousness, even though she was not actually falling. The next thing that Anne remembers is the officers bringing her children safely out of the house, and the ambulance was there. She's not sure if she walked over to it or if they came and got her, but there's another gap in her memory there, and the next thing she knows, she was in the ambulance. Anne remembers the remarkable people that were in the ambulance that day with her. They were volunteer firefighters, and they were concerned with nothing else but making her comfortable and getting her where she needed to go. Anne was not dressed. She was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of underwear. She had been in bed, and she remembers the men in the ambulance asking her, how many times have you been stabbed? And Anne said, honestly, I don't know. I think once, but I honestly don't know. And they said, can we look at your body for other stab wounds? And she said, do whatever you need to do. And they let her know that they just wanted to make her comfortable. And they searched her as carefully as they could. And they let her know she only had one. And then they asked her if they could cut her t-shirt off of her. It was making a biohazard mess in the ambulance. And she agreed. And they sweetly covered her with a sheet and tucked it around her. And then Anne doesn't remember much more until she arrived at the hospital. She doesn't remember going into the hospital, but Anne remembers the nurse. The nurses were so good to her. She remembers this specific nurse just sitting with her, never leaving her side, stroking her hair. And the nurse called her mother and talked to her mother, and her mother was on her way. The nurse told Anne's mother to drive calmly and gave Anne the phone and let her tell her mother that she was okay. Anne's mother had been awoken at about 6 a.m. by police banging on her door. Anne's son, who was about seven at the time, was able to direct them to Anne's mom's house. So the police had woke them up to give her mother her children. And her mother and stepfather had gotten up, scared to death that the police were banging on their door. They had come to the door with a bat. And then when they found out the police were there because something had happened to Anne, they immediately got on the road. They took her children to her great-grandmother's house and started en route to the hospital, even though they did not know where she was. Anne was able to calm her mother on the phone and let her know that she was going to be okay. And the nurse told Anne, can I clean you up? I just want to clean you up before your mother gets here. And Anne agreed. She said, do whatever you have to do. I'm not uncomfortable. I'm okay. Anne remembers the nurse wiping her legs and her feet and the nurse telling her, I'm sorry, I couldn't get the blood out of your toenails. And Anne saying, I never would have expected you to get the blood out of my toenails. Everything is okay. And the nurse looked at her with such tears in her eyes. And Anne knew she wanted to cry for her. And Anne said, I'm going to be okay. And the nurse said, I know. But the thing is, is that we're not allowed to choose who goes back for surgery first. 
We are forced to take the person who is in the worst condition back first. And your husband stabbed himself twice in the chest and he nicked his heart. Our trauma team has to take him back for open heart surgery. But we've called in another trauma team and they're on their way to you and they're going to be here really quickly. But it breaks my heart. Anne was not upset. Anne was not upset and she did not want the nurse to be upset. She did not want her to feel bad. This was the sweetest, kindest woman and Anne will never forget that woman. The next thing Anne remembers is that nurse and another nurse standing over her. They had pricked her finger and they were squeezing it. And the one nurse said, but she's so pale. And Anne chimed in and said, I'm always pale. I just have super light skin. It's okay. And she said, no, honey, and stroked her cheek. This is a different kind of pale. We might have to give you a bag of blood. We're checking to see if we need to give you a bag of blood. Although Anne's unsure, she does not believe she did get a bag of blood. Anne's next memory is being wheeled into surgery, and she was asking them at this time to put her to sleep. It had started to hurt. It took a while, but it had started to hurt, and the pain was increasing, and she did not have the strength to deal with it. Her mother was at the head of the bed as they were wheeling her in, and they kept assuring her, it will be soon. We're going to put you to sleep soon. Her mother told her that she loved her, and she looked at her mom and said, I'm not going to die. I'll see you in a little while. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. Anne never thought that she was going to die. Anne's husband, Steve, had been aiming for her heart. He had put a pillow over her face and stabbed her. But when Anne struggled, he missed her heart, and he hit her directly in the intestines. The doctors and surgeons that day saved her life. They opened her up, and they sewed her intestines back together in multiple places. The surgeon would later tell her that he went through every centimeter of her intestine. Anne remembers waking up and thinking, why didn't I have my surgery? And then she took her right hand and she touched her nose and realized there was a tube coming out of it. She looked down at her belly and realized it was swollen. She had had her surgery. She was just so fast asleep that she couldn't remember anything. A nurse walked in and asked her how she felt, and she said, fine, aside from this tube in my nose. And the nurse said, unfortunately, I had to stay there for a while. 
The nurses took Anne out of recovery and admitted her into a room. And right after Anne was in the room, the mother and sister of her husband walked by her room, recognized her, and came in. The nurse immediately asked Anne who these people were, and Anne told them. Anne was not afraid, but the nurse put herself between them and made them leave. She looked as though she was ready to fight. They immediately switched Anne's room and put her under a fake name on a different floor. Her mother and her children came to visit her, happy that she was alive. Anne recovered in the hospital for seven days before she was able to go home. I felt that I had to tell this story from a different point of view. But this story is my true crime story. I am Melissa Ann Lancaster, and I survived a murder-suicide attempt. My husband did not survive. At first, I didn't feel lucky. My whole life had been turned upside down. I had to start taking my children to counseling. They had been through so much trauma that night. Imagine walking down the stairs at six years old and your mother tells you, run and hide, hide in the closet, turns off the light on you and shuts the door, leaving you in the dark. My daughter did as she was told. She woke up her brother and they hid in the closet. She was smart. Imagine the police retrieving you from that closet and taking you to your grandma's house as you watched your mom being loaded into an ambulance. My life had been turned upside down. The person I thought I would spend the rest of my life with was gone, all over one horrible night. Half of my income was gone. My life had literally entirely changed in one horrific night. But I later realized I am one of the luckiest people alive. I had a great support system of friends and family. I was strong enough to not be too deeply affected by this tragedy. I was able to put my life back together. And after I moved out of that house and into my next house, I met some of the best friends that I have ever had in my life. I remarried and had another child. It didn't work out. I definitely did those things too fast. It takes so many years to heal from a trauma like that. I used to think about what happened every single day of my life. I went through years where I couldn't watch a scary movie or even a suspenseful movie because it would bring back that terror feeling that it's really fun to feel if you have not been through something like this. But if you have, it really just is too real. But I have gotten over that now and I'm able to enjoy true crime again. I loved horror movies in my early 20s and as a teenager. And people had to be careful when they woke me up. We found that if somebody walked up to me and like shook me or woke me up, I would grab them and I would shake them. Once I was sleeping on the couch and somebody plugged my nose while I was sleeping and I retracted my feet and kicked them across the room before I was even awake. And then when I woke up, I didn't know where I was for what seemed like a really long time, but I think it was probably like 20 seconds. 
I didn't know who they were. I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what was wrong. And really nothing was wrong. It's just that my subconscious is always on guard. I'm lucky enough to where I don't remember ever having nightmares. But I did sometimes wake up screaming. I just couldn't remember the nightmare. I have a lot of trouble trusting men. I have a lot of trouble trusting that my judgment of men or their feelings for me is accurate. I believe that that is really the only trauma that still remains in me from this today. I feel like society as a whole does not want to accept that this happens. I feel like people definitely have always listened. My friends have always been there for me and my family. But I feel like society as a whole doesn't want to hear these stories. You're kind of expected to just brush them under the rug and move on with your life as if nothing happened. That was not something that I could do. It took me years before I stopped thinking about this every day. I remember noticing it when it happened, just that I wasn't thinking about it every day anymore. And then I remember like the first time I went like a month without thinking about it. And when I did think about it, I was surprised. And that's when I realized that I was healing. And when I speak to people that have been through traumatic instances such as this, that is what I tell them. I tell them that you will stop thinking about it every day. You just need time. Time may not heal this wound all the way, but it will take you back to your normal self. You will be able to have a normal life again. You will move on. One thing that I also noticed is the trauma on my friends and family. The people that were there during this, that witnessed me go through this. This was a trauma for them as well. They didn't come out of this unbroken. It showed them that these things do happen and how you have to be more careful with your life, how easy it is to lose someone you love, how easily my life could have ended. I spent so much time blaming myself. Maybe I wasn't a good wife. What did I do? Maybe I'm just an intolerable person. But I know none of that is true. This wasn't my fault. And there is nothing that anyone could do that would make them deserve such a fate. Even if I had cheated, even if I had been a horrible wife, even if I had been mean, even if I didn't cook dinner, it doesn't matter. There's no reason. Michigan is a no-fault divorce state. You just, you go on with your life in a different way. If something isn't working for you, you just move on with your life in a different way. You don't do this to someone. I am lucky. I am so lucky that he did not venture upstairs and kill my children before he came to me. I am so lucky that when I left the house that night or any other night that I did not come home to find something horrible had happened to my children. I was sitting outside just hanging out with my friends about a year ago in the backyard. We often just sit outside together and just talk. And somebody brought up being lucky. And my friend actually like said, oh, well, like she's so unlucky. And I said, who, me? 
what? No, I'm like the luckiest person I know. And he said, what? I've always had a home to raise my children in. I've never had a lot of money, but we've always had what we've needed. And I've always done it on my own. I was lucky enough to have a career path that gave us enough. I had three beautiful children, and now I even have a grandchild. I was lucky that I came out of this with the strength and the mentality to move on. I'm lucky that I can sleep next to Jeff at night and not be afraid that he's going to kill me. And if you ever think when I tell a story that I might not be sympathetic to the victims, please remember, I am so sympathetic to the victims. I can relate to the victims. When I'm doing research, I often cry for the victims. And if you ever think when I tell a story that I might not be sympathetic to the victims, please remember, I am so sympathetic to the victims. I can relate to the victims. When I'm doing research, I often cry for the victims. And if you ever think when I tell a story that I might not be sympathetic to the victims, please remember, I am so sympathetic to the victims. I can relate to the victims. When I'm doing research, I often cry for the victims. I feel that talking about abuse stories and things that have happened in our lives should be more normalized. And I think over time with the younger generations and things, it is. But I think that the older generation still has a sweep it under the rug mentality. And that mentality needs to end. If we ignore the past, we're doomed to repeat it. I hope one of those firefighters and some nurse that treated me or possibly even the surgeon that saved my life listens to this podcast because I've always wanted to tell them thank you. And if you're a nurse or a surgeon or a firefighter or an EMT that has saved somebody's life, please know they probably want to tell you thank you. Thank you for listening to my personal true crime story. If you have experienced domestic violence, please remember you are not alone. Stay safe, make good decisions, and remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. 
If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out.